Support for Wavemakers comes from listeners like you and the Tampa Bay Times. The Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper is available around the Tampa Bay area and online at tampabay.com. Thanks to the Tampa Bay Times for their support. Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers with Tom and Janet, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And running the board today is public offender John Dunn. Answering the phones is DJ Spaceship. If you want to join our conversation, you can call us at 813-239-9663 and he'll get you through to us. Um, you can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. Today's guest has been making waves in Florida legal circles for decades. Julianne Holt is the longest-serving elected public defender Hillsborough County has ever had. She was first elected in 1992, 31 years ago, when she defeated incumbent Judge Lucky, who had served for 21 years. The Tampa Bay Times says Julie has become a quiet but powerful player in local politics and a revered figure in the legal community, and political candidates routinely seek her endorsement. She's planning to retire at the end of the year, and she's here today to discuss the change that she's seen and the challenges public defenders still face in a state like Florida. Welcome to Wavemakers, Julie. Thank you, and good morning. The legislature starts its 60-day regular session today, so we're going to talk about what you'll be looking out for out of Tallahassee. Um, We also know you've been looking for ways to make the criminal justice system more equitable and just, and we'll talk about that. Um, But first, let's discuss discussed yesterday's big news from Andrew Warren. Uh, The duly elected Hillsborough State Attorney suspended from office by Governor Ron DeSantis says he will not challenge Susie Lopez, the prosecutor DeSantis replaced him with. Uh, Did that surprise you? It did not surprise me because uh, Andrew has really been talking to a lot of people and his main concern was that if uh, I run and I get elected again, uh, the governor's going to find a reason to suspend me again. And, you know, I don't think people think about the emotional toll that this takes, not only on Andrew himself, but obviously on his family. He's got two children that are of school age. And so, and he's got a, a wife that has been very supportive. And I think it's very hard for, for them to see what he's been going through because obviously he has stayed actively involved in a lot of things. He's traveling nationwide, statewide. He's, um, you know, he's really still making an impression upon the voters nationally and statewide. But at the same time, he has to come home and he has to, you know, deal with the emotional aspects of his family and, and what they're seeing happen to him. So talk to us a little bit, though, about then what it's like working with Susie Lopez. How is that different from working with Andrew Warren? Well, they, oper- they operate differently from the standpoint of how they, how they run their offices. So that's the, f- the first challenge. Um, with Andrew, we had to establish a relationship because I really hadn't known him for a significant period of time. So as a result of that, we would literally go to lunch once a month and we would meet regularly. We would talk regularly. He's a very intellectual fella, and so anytime we wanted to talk about death penalty cases, you know, we would have to write a pretty significant letter to him asking for mitigation as it relates to the death penalty, and you had to have a lot of backup material, and you knew he read it because he would call you up and ask questions. Uh, it operates a little differently uh, under, under Susie. Um, we still send letters of mitigation, but there's not that interaction between she and I. It's very much done 
by her committee Mm -hmm. uh, that she has in place, which is the same committee that Andrew had, but it operates differently. What she does do uh, is she'll call me if there is going to be a waiver of the death penalty or if they are going to seek the death penalty. She will make a phone call and she'll let me know, give me a heads up. And that's really important because sometimes people forget that we have a client and a client's family that we need to prepare for this, this notice of death. It's, and, mm-hmm. you know, so the first time that I've learned about it in the newspaper as opposed to the attorneys telling us, uh, you know, I called her and I said, listen, let me just tell you from my standpoint how this operates. And so since that time, she's been very, very nice. Um, she does, you know, she has implemented certain policies, but they're all built around the same thing. We intend to follow the law. And so you, most of the decisions that we see being made uh, are just that, that way. We're going to follow the law. If the law requires a minimum mandatory, we're going to seek a minimum mandatory. If the law requires this, this is what we're going to do. Like right now, we're going through a huge adjustment period because January 1st started the new law dealing with pretrial detention, a bill that was passed by the legislature that's had already a tremendous chaotic impact on both of our offices as well as the judiciary. And her policy is, if it says we shall move to detain, then that's what she's going to do. And, you know, that's kind of, it's kind of tough because there are some provisions in there that we believe are really extraordinarily punitive in nature. And you're going to have people that are sitting in jail overnight waiting to go in front of a judge just because of this brand new bill. Whereas six months ago, they would have had a bond and they would have been able to post the bond and be released. You know, I don't, I think I've heard much about this uh, legislation. Can you explain to us a little bit more about what the goal was there and, and what it's actually doing? The Supreme Court of uh, Florida was directed to create a uniform bond schedule that would be applicable across the entire state. The bill that was passed by the legislature said that that's what they needed to do. The bill also says <clears throat> that if the chief judge of a jurisdiction wants to create a bond schedule different than the uniform, they can do so if they increase the bonds. And and just to be clear, a bond schedule is the amount of bail someone pays, uh, expected to be paid uh, for a particular crime. That's correct. So everybody is basically know what they're facing when they go into court. Well, especially, it operates really at the time of arrest. So you're taken down to the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office jail and while you're being uh, fingerprinted and photographed and, and things of that sort, you're told, here's your bond so that you can pick up the phone, call a family member or call a bondsman or a bondswoman and say, hey, I'm, I want to post bond. And you could get out of jail after a few hours. Now you're mandated on, in several, several charges. There's a mandatory you must appear in front of a judge, which means it's the next day. Wow. So that has increased the number of cases then that you're having to deal with as a public defender. Well, it's increased the number of cases that are going to what we call first appearance court. Mm -hmm. That means they haven't bonded out. That means they're held overnight. It's increasing the jail population. It's also increasing our caseload. It's increasing our workload because if the state has to file a motion for pretrial detention because of the law, then within five days, there must be a hearing where the judge determines, are they going to detain this person or are they going to give them a bond that that they can uh, then obviously post? So that means the jails are more crowded? It will be. It will be. They're building quickly because this started January 1st. Holy cow. Um, Okay, so that is something that the legislature put into effect last year um, and just went into effect January 1st. 
what are you watching um, in the legislature this year? There is going to, there was a 100 page mental health bill that uh, was dropped yesterday. So in other words, it was filed yesterday. There's a juvenile detention bill where they're going to expand uh, the circumstances under which uh, judges can detain children that are charged with criminal acts, uh, which are called delinquent acts. And they're going to uh, expand not only the time period, but how often this can happen during the time that the case is actually pending. So those are two big ones. The mental health is going to be involving uh, Florida State Hospital because it also in- includes what we normally refer to as Baker Acts. And uh that's, and, matter, and that's in which someone can be detained against their will. Against their will because they are either a harm, there's a threat of harm to the public and or to themselves. And the Florida State Hospital right now, the reason the two bills are problematic in some ways is because right now you have a pretty extensive waiting list for clients that are found incompetent to proceed to be sent to the Florida State Hospital in order to receive their treatment. So we have our jail is acting again as a de facto mental health hospital at this point. Wait, say that again, they're waiting. You have a waiting list of people to be seen to get into Florida State? To be sent to the Florida State Hospital. Oh, because it's full. Because it's full. They say they, they, they say it's full, number one, and or they don't have enough staff in order to handle things. So literally, judges are issuing orders, at least here in Hillsborough County, that, hey, you need to come and pick up these people within this amount of time. The detention, the detention part with the youth, the same thing. You have waiting lists to go into certain programs. And so, you know, to me, it's not, it's not equitable to detain someone just because programs aren't available in a timely fashion because you're not, you're not getting the benefit of what it is that the program is supposed to be providing you. So what does the mental health bill do? It, there's a lot of things. Lot of it's going it's, it's to it's gonna move some restrictions that exist because part, part of what I think everybody recognizes is we have a workforce issue in the state of Florida. We don't have enough teachers. We don't have enough nurses. We don't have enough psychiatrists. We don't have enough psychologists. And so I think this bill is going to try to lo- loosen up some of the standards that have been set so that more people will come to Florida in order to, to take these jobs that are necessary. Okay, so you support this. You like this bill. Well, there's going to be parts that you're going to support, and then there's going to okay. be parts that you're not going to support. Okay. And I'll be honest, I have not read the full 100 pages, yeah. obviously. But because, that's one piece you're looking forward to, well, you think is a good piece that you're... Anything yeah. that will bring qualified workforce in, but what you don't want to do is you don't want to lower the standards of care in any fashion. So that's what we'll be keeping an eye on. That's, okay. that's one thing. And the other thing is... You want to really be careful in this area of Baker Acts because a lot of people file petitions, but when you're when that person is taken to be evaluated, it's determined that they don't even qualify under the Baker Act. So I want to make sure that, if anything, we tighten up uh, that evaluation process or even increase the, the, the time, decrease the time period so that someone's evaluated much quicker because you don't want them held against their will if they don't even qualify for the criteria of, of Baker Acts. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, and we're talking to public defender Julianne Holt, who is retiring from office um, after um, serving for 31 years, retiring from public service. Um, and Julianne was only the second elected public defender in the state uh, or in the, the county of Hillsborough. If you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call, 813-239-9663, or or you can send an email to dj at wmnf.org. I know one of the big things you uh, monitor when the, session, the legislature is in session is funding for your office. Uh, as everyone can uh, probably imagine, public defenders are not the best paid uh, lawyers in the state of Florida. Although 
if you add them all up, you probably run the largest criminal defense firm in Tampa, right? I mean, you have... How many lawyers do you have now? I, I do. We're right at about um, 85 lawyers, and we have nine uh, what we call certified legal interns that are waiting to take the Florida bar here now in February. And hopefully if they uh, pass the bar, then they'll join the office, obviously. So my goal is to have anywhere between 100 to 105 attorneys at any given time during COVID and during the time that obviously uh, the, the economy was boosting like it was. A lot of people left, uh, number one. We never closed down the court system. So people who had an extreme concern over COVID, they decided to that they wanted to, to work remotely. So they left and went into a different field. And then you have the, the aspect of when the economy was boosting, they were starting lawyers fresh out of law school at about $90,000 a year. And we weren't earning more. What do you? Yeah, what's your starting salary? We just got it up to seventy thousand two hundred dollars. Uh, so that is tremendous because when I started, it was at thirty nine thousand. Wow! So, so thirty one years later, at least we've managed to get a little bit more money on the table. So it's a little bit easier to hire. Uh, yeah, it attorneys. is. It is easier, and you also have a benefits package that comes up to about thirty percent. So, you know, if you if you find a way to explain to people why public service number one is important, and there's obviously there's the importance part of it. You know, you're going to be the champion of the Constitution when you join an office such as ours, and then you talk to them about the long term benefits with the retirement system, with insurance, with and you know that includes not just health insurance, it includes disability insurance and everything else. Because over the years, I've had some lawyers that have had disabilities that have developed, and they've been able to retire out under that. So it's a real benefit to, to include those things. And as you try to get more money uh, for your your office, you have to deal with the reality of how your office is funded. And it's an unusual system, I think, in Florida, in that it's supposed to be funded by fines, fees, and restitution, I guess. Um, but, of course, probably 90% of people don't pay their fines and fees. Um, so ha is that a challenge for, for you? Is the legislature just not giving you enough money? Well, for for several years, and I and I'm saying I mean several 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 years, we were we were receiving funding fifty cents on the dollar compared to the state attorney's office. So you you immediately had an inequity between the two offices. Um, over the last several years, we've really had a, an opportunity to talk to the legislature about doing an equitable one-on-one -on -one funding dollar for dollar as it relates to the, the salaries of an assistant public defender and an assistant state attorney, because those are folks that go into the courtroom every day and work side by side together. So if you have an inequity in salary, you know, it really creates morale issues. And I think the legislature realized it. And I, I'm the first person to say that uh, when we had Wilton Simpson uh, as the head of, uh, As the Speaker of the, of the House. Well, he yeah. was the Senate President. And well, Senate so, President, that's right. And as Senate President, we sat down with him. He actually gave us an opportunity to come in and talk to him. And we took the lead. The state attorneys were with us, but the PDs took the, the lead. And when we finished talking to him about our salary is, you know, starting salary was 39000 And then we finally got you to increase it to, to fifty. Uh, but And, and he said, $50,000 a year? He says, I pay the people on my chicken egg, my egg farm more than I, more than what you're telling me that yeah. we're giving you. And that was the first person that really realized and said, that's not right. That's not good. And he's the one that started building on the salary. 
Um, do you have any champions right now in the legislature? I, you know, you mentioned Wilton Simpson. I know Jeff Brandis, of course, was a was a great partner when he was there. Who are you working with now? Is there anybody that's a great champion? You know, I, I think uh, I think the Speaker of the House recognizes the issue. I think if you, if if I were to say the champion, I think it's going to be Senate President Pasadomo because she. Uh, enjoys a very good relationship with both her assist, uh, both her state attorney and her public defender down there in the 20th Circuit, which is at Fort Myers and Naples area. Mm-hmm. And when you have someone that's in, in a powerful position like that, who has a really good relationship, that they see each other all the time, they talk, that really becomes the person that, that you know, that becomes your champion. Uh, her big issue this year, though, is going to be health care. And so, you know, we're going to be, I think, competing to some extent with the fact that they do want to put some money into affordable housing and they do want to. And that's that was her baby last year. So I think there's going to be some competitiveness. But the number one priority for the Public Defender Association is going to be a cost of living increase for all employees and then increasing the salary for assistant public defenders. Um, And the reality of it is, is whatever the public defenders uh, receive, the state attorneys are also going to receive that same benefit because they look at us as a unit pretty much. Uh, So that's a great benefit to us. But I I think that uh, I think you'll you'll have somebody like like Senate President Pasadomo being our champion. Um, we've got a, a a caller on the line right now. Um, this is Pat Frank, who is the former um, uh, clerk, Hillsborough County Clerk of Court, a longtime clerk of court, and she um, is on the line right now. Pat, what is on your mind? Well, I want to talk to Julie, and, and I'd like to. She's my friend and a person who I've certainly admired as a public official. Hi, Pat. So good to hear from you. Oh, I'm I'm glad, glad to talk, talk to you. I know you're winding down your business, and you've got a lot of things on your mind, but you deserve to uh, be with your family more than you've been having to do through the years. Well, and I know that you uh, tried to talk talk me out of this decision, uh, and I know you said you thought I still had a lot of good years in me, but what you just said is really uh, important. I do want to have some more time with my family and my friends, and, you know, I'm going to stay engaged, as you know. I'll be volunteering and doing things. I'm not, it's not like I'm going to go live uh, a great life somewhere in another country or something like that, so I'll still be involved. I, I, I would expect you to be doing <laughs> More, more things than you think you're doing. You're going to do. Well, Pat was in her 90s before she retired, so you're you're kind of a, a you know yeah, a youngin a to be retiring compared. <laughs> That's but, exactly. But what Pat, you said. I, I don't know if you were able to hear. Pat, this is Tom, and you know, just for full disclosure, I worked for Pat for six great years, and she's a political icon in this uh, community and uh, a beloved figure. Uh, well, but, it, was, it was a great time. I enjoyed working with you, Tom, and and with Julie. You know, we were partners because uh, we worked with the, the, the public defender's office, and I admired her so much because she she was a person who put her heart into it. You know, it's very hard when you have you start out. I mean, she was she's there been there thirty years. Um, um, the, the salary was t- tremendously low. And Julie has spent a lot of time in Tallahassee trying to uh, correct that. And uh, I heard her saying that she, the uh, public defenders and the district attorney's salaries are, are now on the same par, which is a wonderful thing. 
and all of them in government ought to be paid well because we need a judicial system that people can honor when they go into the courthouse. We don't want to think that if somebody is charged with something that they don't have good counsel and a fair trial. And I can assure you with Julie, she, she picks the best people, she trains them, and she works with them, and, and she, when, she won't, when she thinks it's necessary, she goes into the courthouse and tries the case herself. She's just a miraculous person, and I admire her and the work that her people are doing because it is, it is something where there are so many people who are poor uh, mm-hmm. The statistics say that people, average person, only has less than $400 in their bank account, and then they get arrested for something that, that maybe... They didn't do. They, yeah, they didn't do. Yeah. And, 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 and they come up and, and they don't have the money for the bail. And, and the person who is well-stocked well with money has, has the same thing but just lays out the money for the bond and walks out. And the rest of the people are left there. Fortunately, uh, it's been been a a blessing. The community care is uh, community community service is one of the options that's being uh, um, given to to the individuals, not in all instances, but... uh, that gives them an opportunity to uh, level the playing field. I know as the clerk, you work closely with, with you worked closely with the public defender. Um, and and oh, I know. I can, the, yeah. the, the people are, are miraculous there. They, 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 uh, I, I told Julie this more than once, and I've said it publicly. Um, people that I, that I run into have run into through the years, the 16 years I was there. Um, they 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 say, "Oh, I've got this, and I I I I can't afford an attorney." I said, "If you can't, you're going to get the very best at the at the uh, at the public defender's office because those people know what they're doing." Okay, I know we're all sorry to see Julie go, but I guess everybody deserves a little time to put their feet up and relax, right, Pat? And I know you're doing the same thing. So, um, I'm, I'm sorry. No, that's, that's okay. okay. We that's appreciate okay. you calling in. Thanks and for calling in, Pat. Thanks so much. Thank you, Pat. Love you. Hope to see you soon. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, we've got an email from David Bryant who says, um, Hi, Janet and Tom. Thank you for this great guest today. I admire Ms. Holt and her longtime public service. Um, I'm disappointed and angry that the Florida legislature gives so much power to the gover- governor's office. Where are the checks and balances? I'm amazed that DeSantis got away with suspending elected officials like Warren and Worrell with no pushback from the legislature. Ron should not be allowed to throw away our votes unilaterally. Otherwise, why vote? Is this a democracy? Well, I did want to get back to this issue of uh, the difference between Susie Lopez and Andrew Warren because you said that, you know, Susie Lopez has said she's going to follow the law. But isn't that what Andrew Warren was doing? Or was he not following the law? And was the governor right to suspend him? Well, I, you know, to me, yes, Andrew was following the law. 
Uh, I think that the the statements that that he signed off on that the governor used as a as a basis for the suspension, which dealt with uh, abortion. Correct. And um, I, th- I think uh, transgender rights. Correct. And frankly, he didn't have any such cases pending before him, number one. And, the, and the, those laws were really under, you know, scrutiny and, and were being analyzed as to whether or not they were constitutional. So for me, obviously, that, that was just a side issue. Right. But to remind folks, uh, that's, it was because he signed a pledge with some other state attorneys saying he would not prosecute these particular um, violations right. of the law. There were right. there were a lot of a lot of a lot of uh, other people that signed off on it, but if you if you look at what he was doing internally in his office, you know he was extremely focused on economic crimes. He was extremely focused on uh, prosecuting uh, cases involving obviously uh, guns and things of that sort, homicides. Uh, what we saw was was someone who, however, did have a vision for how how can you lessen the burden on the criminal justice system without compromising public safety. So, for instance, when you, when you create this juvenile uh, arrest avoidance program, for instance, uh, giving civil citations to, to juveniles, you know, the community supported that, as did law enforcement at the time. And it went through multiple changes. And that was one of the things he suspended him for, right? Well, I think what he was saying is that he was he was – uh, someone that really didn't want to prosecute, and that's why he created all these diversion programs. But that was really isolating one individual because another program that was created is some, this program called Rider, and by the way, it still exists under under Miss Lopez. Um, and it's you know if you go in and you meet all the qualifications of the program, they let you go into this Rider program, and then if you successfully do everything that's required of you, at the end of the day, the charges can be dismissed against you. And so many prosecutors across the state have those types of programs. The diversion programs that exist here in Hillsborough County were done as a collaboration among all stakeholders. And so it wasn't just his, his aspect of it. The other thing, though, if you, if you look at the Worrell's order of suspension, there were a lot of things that were in there that were very, very fact-specific and case-specific. My concern is this. My concern is this. Uh, if... And this is the way the justice Let's system just, works. Worrell was the, um, the pro- state attorney in, in the Ninth Circuit, in Orlando, so Orlando area. And what was what was the horrible thing that the governor DeSantis said she did? Well, her executive order of suspension really talked about very specific cases, and it was very much generated through the opinions of law enforcement. What I have never heard that has occurred in either of these is. If I have an issue, if I'm if I'm the governor, if I'm the chief of staff of the governor, if I'm the general counsel for the governor, and you think someone's doing something inappropriate or wrong, you can pick up the phone and call that person and say, I need you to come to Tallahassee. I need you to sit up here and I need you to explain these things. And whether it's coming from law enforcement, whether it's coming from rumors, whatever it is, but you let somebody explain why a decision was made in a particular case. Because not everyone that is arrested not everyone that is arrested should be prosecuted because the second set of eyes on an arrest is supposed to be the state attorney to see whether or not probable cause exists for what was for what that person was arrested for you may have to lower the charges you may have to increase the charges just because an arrest is made you know doesn't mean that it's it's good to go Arrest and I know or, police were there. The, the police chief, uh, uh, the former police chief Dugan, was very frustrated with Andrew Warren because he decided not to go forward with some prosecutions of related to the protests, protests the Black, Black Lives Matter Black Lives protests. Matter protests, and and I know he was you know secretly uh, funneling information to the governor's office uh, about 
uh, it has since come out about Andrew Warren, as did Chad Crowster, the sheriff, who had actually signed agreements with uh, with the state attorney's office on how they would handle certain crimes. Yet, for some reason, Chad Cronister, he's still in office. He was not suspended. I think, I think what people sometimes don't understand and what they miss is that discretion exists at every level of the criminal justice system and the juvenile justice system. Starting when the police officer stops you for a speeding ticket. Correct, correct. So law enforcement has discretion. Prosecutors have discretion. Uh, judges have discretion in, in in some instances. Now, in some, they, they're, they're required by mandatory laws to do certain mm-hmm. things. But it's an abuse of discretion that is the standard that is being used. And for me, I think if you're going to go start going down that path, that means you can second-guess any decision that anyone makes. I don't, I, don't, in, I don't believe there's a person in this community that would say if a law enforcement officer stopped them today, and didn't give them a ticket or didn't place them under arrest, that they would be mad that they used their discretion for that. And so I think you have to really, and I think that's what the community really is upset about is that, you know, let's not use different standards as it relates to these things. And when you do give someone discretion, uh, you know, it's different to have a policy, for instance, that could say, I, I, I'm sending a memo out to all my attorneys and I'm going to tell them we are not seeking the death penalty in any case under any set of circumstances. Because unfortunately, that's not what the law says. The law says that what you're supposed to do is use your discretion, but you must review mm-hmm. all cases and you must weigh factors. And I think if you're doing that and then you use your discretion, I think you're well within the confines of, of what your Well, you did have a previous are. state attorney in Orlando who took that position, but Governor Scott did not suspend her. He took the death penalty cases and distributed them to other states. Distributed them over to the Fifth Circuit, as a matter of fact. And I think that that was a lot of what the arguments were that that people were saying is that, you know, if if you're going to remove someone from office, you know, it should be for something more than the use of your discretion in some fashion. And that's the the mistake that, that, that she made was she made that statement saying, I'm never seeking the death penalty. Well, is Susie Lopez using discretion appropriately, or do you think she is not using discretion appropriately? No, I, I think that in circumstances where, where, where discretion can be used, I believe that she uses it. I believe that, uh, that she understands that her constitutional responsibility as the prosecutor is to look at every single case um, at the intake level and determine whether or not it's appropriate to file the charges for which that person was under arrest. Because at the end of the day, if you take a bad case forward and that person gets found not guilty, what have you accomplished, right? Other than to deprive someone of their liberty, perhaps during that entire time period, because a lot of people are incarcerated. Right now we have 3,100 people incarcerated in our jail awaiting the resolution of their cases. So I think she uses her discretion. I think that I think the difference with with uh, with Miss Lopez is that she has not in any way executed any type of across the board policy other than I'm going to follow the law. But in the case of the death penalty, she actually switched a recommendation that the uh, Andrew Warren's office had, had taken on a, on a case from well, we won't seek the death penalty to we will seek the death penalty. Uh, and what happened in that case? That happened so fast, 
so fast within the first few days of, of her having been appointed by the governor to this position, our office obviously asked for a hearing in front of the in front of the, the judge because we we wanted to know what had changed. Because once a decision is made by by a person who's duly elected to make that decision, then what is it that that changed in the last 24, 48 hours for you to now change this decision? And I think and, and she we she testified and she testified under oath and she testified as to the reasons why she made that change um, and and certainly Miss Lopez has sought the death penalty I think we have ten death penalty cases pending right now we had gotten to the position where we were down to just a handful um, and I I just don't think people realize um, number one what seeking the death penalty does in terms of the case it's gonna it's gonna be a case that's much more. Uh, long-lasting. It's going to be much more expensive. But more importantly, this area of the death penalty is an area where the scheme by which juries make decisions has changed so much over the years. It just in my in my 31 years of, of being the public defender, you know, we've had three changes, major changes. And so what you do is you're creating appellate issues, appellate issues that you don't know when they're going to be determined. You don't know if they're going to be determined in the Florida Supreme Court, in the United States Supreme Court. And so this closure that you that you say that you want to bring to a victim's family is really always kind of like it's a closure. But guess what? It might come back because of the constitutionality issues. And so I don't think create I don't think going down the path of gray areas that, that have to be resolved is necessarily good for victims families, to be very honest. You're listening to uh, Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom. And our guest today is um, public defender Julianne Holt. We'll be right back with more with Julianne Holt uh, right after this uh, brief little interlude um, informing you of a great program on one of WMNF's HD stations. If you love classic soul, R&B, Caribbean, gospel, hip hop, or house music, And if you love podcasting and exclusive interviews, if you love urban culture and urban music, then you will really love the Urban Cafe channel. You can find it here on HD2 if you have an HD2 radio, or you can go to WMNF.org and download our mobile app so that you can listen to it all the time. Welcome back. Um, So... One of the things that they're talking about in the legislature this year is merging judicial districts. Talk to us a little bit about that. We have 20 judicial circuits in Florida. Some are single counties like Hillsborough, which only has Hillsborough as a single circuit. Others, like over in Pinellas, it shares a circuit with Pasco. There was a proposal by the House Speaker to decrease the number of circuits, and you're against it. Absolutely was against it. And the Supreme Court of Florida issued its report and overwhelmingly uh, made it very clear that they did not think consolidation was appropriate. And the good thing about it is that the speaker has has made a statement and said that he is is not going to take up that issue, that he is going to accept and give credibility to the Supreme Court report. But it was very important, I think, for us to, to recognize the, the there is a lot of movement in this particular area. There was not a good reason that could be located for a consolidation. And to see all the Florida Bar members, to see prosecutors, to see public defenders, to see private lawyers, to see everybody come together and take a strong position. And and think about it. It's a risky thing 
to take a strong position against something that the speaker wants or the governor wants because at the end of the day, you have to remember that our budget is comes from those mm-hmm. individuals. And so, you know, it was – I was really proud to see how many people actually stood up and, and spoke out against this. One theory about why he was pushing that, though, was to make it harder for someone like um, – Andrew Warren uh, to run because if you merged Hillsborough with Polk County, suddenly the electorate is a little more Republican, a little more conservative. You could do the same thing over in Orlando. Um, what do you think of that theory, Julie? Well, I, I think it was very, I think it was a theory that was absolutely founded in, in fact. Uh, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you, you just need to pay attention to what's going on right now because the, the makeup and the demographics of the electorate in Hillsborough County is not what people thought it was. It's changed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to, to think that you might just make a decision such as this because of a couple of prosecutors or something of that sort or, or to say, hey, we don't ever want to have, you know, a, a Democrat elected again as it relates to, to the, the judiciary or something. You know, just it, it just was that would really be inherently unfair and that would really have caused an inequity across the board. I mean, it, it, and no one should be beholding, no one should be beholding to, to anyone. And, you know, unfortunately, that's a little bit about what's going on right now is that people feel, people are afraid to sometimes make the right decision mm-hmm. because of the repercussions of it. And and no one wants to operate that way. No one should want to operate that way. Well, besides the legislature, you also monitor things going on in local government. And one of the proposals right now in the city of Tampa is to have a juvenile curfew. And I'm since some of those juveniles, I, I don't. Do you end up? Uh, do you do you, uh, defend juveniles? Ninety nine percent of the juveniles that are in the system are represented by our office. So, what do you think of this idea of a juvenile curfew? It would be citywide, by the way. There was talk of having it just apply to Ybor City, uh, but I think the city attorney's office said, "No, you can't do that. It has to be uh, an equitable uh, curfew, and it has to be citywide." Well, I, I think by making a citywide, I think they were they were obviously smart to do that because obviously otherwise you were going to have the quick constitutional attacks that were going to be made. But it's really not going to be about the curfew. Uh, it's going to be about the implementation of the curfew because you can have selective implementation. You can say the curfew is for the entire city, but it's where is law enforcement's presence going to be? Where are their efforts going to be? Who is going to be? Who's going to monitor that aspect of life? Discretion. Get yeah. back to the discretion. Are, are you are you going to be are you going to be in New Tampa mm-hmm. and are you going to be south of Gandy and are you going to be in West Tampa and are you going to be at the university area? Right. So where is the, so the implementation is going to matter and that's why representing ninety nine percent of the juveniles it won't take very long for us to see whether or not a pattern starts to exist. Now all that being said, I'm a very strong believer in a couple of things. Number one, parents do need to be responsible for their children. Um, and I think when you hear these arguments, when you hear these arguments being that say, why are you getting involved in telling parents what to do? No one should be out at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 well, o'clock we, in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. We had a guest on a couple of weeks who actually suggested that parents should be held legally liable for what their children do. You know, it's really interesting because several, several years ago, there was, uh, you know, when the juvenile justice system's numbers were out of control, uh, a lot of people were saying the kids, the kids, the kids, and somebody said, whoa, what about the parents? You know, because the parents are who are supposed to be responsible. Same thing with gun ownership, for instance. Mm-hmm. If you you, you own a gun, you don't, you don't maintain it correctly. You don't, nope. you don't do the safety pr- provisions correctly. Uh, you know, you can have civil liability as a result of those types of things. And so I do think that at some point in time, you are going to see some action uh, as it relates to, to parents, or if not, you're going to have this this 
governmental intrusion that people complain about. But it just happened this morning where uh, Speaker Renner made it clear that they are going to move forward legislation as it relates to children and their access to social media. And primarily from the standpoint of, and he put it in the terms of pornography, that kids can have access to pornography through social media and that no one's, no one's monitoring that. And, you know, hmm. at the end of the day, same thing. Parents are supposed to monitor the cell phone. They're supposed to monitor the computer. They're supposed to monitor all these things. But basically what he's saying is it's not happening. The platforms are not monitoring. So we're going to do governmental intrusion. And there's going to be a lot of discussion out there that says parents should be responsible for their kids. But he's making it very clear. You know, you, when you do a survey in a school and you find out that 50 some odd percent of the of the young girls in school say that they've been bullied or say that they're depressed or say that they've had suicidal thoughts. All of those things are things that someone should care about. Mm -hmm. We know that mental health is a a huge issue that we have in our our country right now and in our particular state. Mm -hmm. And so if parents don't take accountability for their children, you're going to have this governmental intrusion that comes in. Well, we've got um, about 15 minutes left. So let's talk a, a little bit about what's next for you. So, what yeah. happens next for uh, Julianne Holt? I know you've got this year. Well, what, let's start with what do you want to do in your last year while you're there? So you've got 10 months or is it a, a whole year? It's, you, a, it's a whole year. It goes so, a couple of days into the next January, okay. as a matter of fact. So what, what, do you, what do you want to do in this last year, your last... Uh, Okay, so I want to I want to ramp up uh, the and finalize the the ultimate hiring of the number of attorneys that I think are appropriate for the office. So that's you know that's one. The second thing is we are we are in the middle of a contract right now, which will once completed, uh, will literally put us on the cutting edge of everything from a technology standpoint. Uh, so and what that means is we're this idea of being attacked ransom, all these things. Uh, We're putting everything in place that is extremely protective of everything. We're going to be operating almost every aspect of our case management system, our discovery system, everything up in the cloud. Well, Um, when you first became public defender, (laughs) uh, what was it like? Well, you had three by five cards, which is how you tracked your 65,000 cases, which thank goodness now I can track it through a report in my uh, case management system. And we, the biggest challenge we had for the last couple of years, uh, Janet, was how to deal with this digital evidence that is now coming in because it comes in faster than ever. A DUI stop, you're liable to get eight different officers, body cams, dash cams, and, you know, and and, and once that comes to you in discovery, you have a a professional, legal, and ethical obligation to review all those things. And we had people that, we had two people that spent all day, every day, uh, uploading into our system, then downloading into the case management system. So it would come in through a server, then you'd have to download it and put it into your case management system. The way we've set it up now through something that, that we purchased is it just goes from cloud to cloud and it's there and you just drop a link into your case management system and you can look at it Uh, obviously faster obviously better Uh, you can share that information off of your laptop when you go see the client in in the jail or when they come in to see you, you can share all that with them or you can send them the link so we've created a client portal where clients can come in uh, and into this portal, and they can obtain all their records that we have. So we, we've gone basically, we're paperless. Mm-hmm. That's the bottom line goal, is to be paperless. Other than, obviously, in homicide cases, because you get 
thousands and thousands of pages of discovery there. So that's a little different. Um, but but to the to the that's probably going to be the biggest thing that we will finish this year. And then thirdly, we're going to finalize the last phase of a training program because one of the things that our office is known for is the amount of training and the in-depth training that we do. And we're finding that more and more um, you really have a, probably a good two-year curve of training when when people start coming in because they don't learn about DNA, for instance. They don't learn about ballistics in law school. You don't learn about these things. So you have to learn about them somewhere and it's obviously going to be when you come to work. So we're going to magnify that training program. And then, you know, I've set up, I think, a system that works really well from the standpoint of how we have the office organized. But we're going to do a review of it to ensure that we have all the right people in all the right places. And what that means is, where do people want to be, though? Because if you've been with me for 10 years and you've been a division chief for 10 years or you've been doing homicides for 10 years, maybe you want to break and you want to go into something else. Maybe you want to be a trainer. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, maybe you want to go into juvenile. Um, And then, obviously... You know, hopefully, hopefully be able to set enough of a culture between my office and Ms. Lopez's office that it it will be a seamless transition for the next person. Because if you can get the two offices to be working, you know, with with good respect for each other and with good vision about where we all want to be, that's that's I think very very important. Um, and you know, I've been known as a micromanager. <laughs> forever. And you know what I tell people is, you know, I'm a micromanager to the extent of that I want to know everything that there is to know because I should, mm-hmm. because the community is going to ask questions. Judges are going to ask questions. But we've set up a system in our office where we have division chiefs that really have good experience and have been with us for a long time. It's their responsibility to, to be in that courtroom every day, take responsibility for the lawyers, for the clients, be responsive to the judges communicate well with the judges and then come back to the office and say to me and to Rocky, hey, this is what happened today. You know, my number two needs to know everything. I need to know everything because you make decisions based on the knowledge that you have. If you know that a judge is not a happy judge, you need to go find out why the judge is not happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe in doing that. A lot of people don't. A lot of people believe that your job is to just be an adversary with everybody. I don't feel that way. I feel like we have to have relationships and we have to understand each other. Uh, st- your adversarial part is as your role as a as a lawyer, but my role as the head of the the office is to ensure that we have collaboration and good relationships with people so that we can talk to them. Right. Because if you don't, the clients get hurt. Right. And there are a lot of organizations involved that all need to coordinate to make it a, a positive and fair experience for the the people coming through the system. Um, and, so, and we're going to and the la- and the last thing is I'm going to litigate the constitutionality of these these bills that are being passed that are that in my opinion very punitive in nature. So you're going to see our office take the lead. For instance, on the pretrial detention, we've already filed our first constitutionality motion. Uh, we're going to do the same thing with this new bill that that's being promulgated in terms of juvenile detention. And if the mental health bill is significantly not good for our our community, we'll litigate that. So, you know, I have to put all that in motion and then hope that the next person... Go out swinging. (laughs) Going out swinging. Exactly. (laughs) So you've been 30 years. So what's changed other than the index cards, the technology? And maybe the answer is nothing, but is there a a difference in the kind of crimes you see or the people who you see who are being charged with crimes over the past 30 years. Tampa has changed a lot. Our community has changed a lot. 
has has the the criminal justice system as you see it changed a lot? You know, I, I think the criminal justice system for the first time, uh, just in the last couple two or three years, has finally realized that mental health men, mental health disorders and mental health wellness they're for real. Hmm. These are for well, real. apparently it's the sole reason we have gun violence, Julie. Well, you know, you and I <laughs> both know better than that. Well. So, but but it's really that you finally everybody well, finally recognizes touche, it. Tom. Yeah, but that yeah. was yeah. But yeah, but but yeah. I mean, that is interesting that now that's actually coming up for whatever reason we're getting there. But recognizing that that is a problem and that is why people end up in these situations. You know, COVID did it. And I'll tell you the other thing that that I think people finally in the criminal justice system and the juvenile justice system are realizing that the lack of economic resources and the lack of of opportunity within certain communities is truly a factor and is truly uh, a part of why you have people in the crim- in the criminal justice system there's no doubt about it that poverty has been criminalized so you have mental health that was criminalized you have poverty that was criminalized it's, and i think people are starting to see that and, mm-hmm. and are starting to feel that hey we have to change these areas and you think uh, Republicans as well. You see that among Republicans as well. I do, I, I do, and I think that part of it is because you can't deny the lack of affordability of housing. You can't deny the lack of access to mental health care, and that's why you're seeing the movement you're seeing in a supermajority legislature right now. You're seeing that movement, and it's because they recognize it. Now, are are they going to come up with all the right answers? I think if they talk to to the right people, not only in the community, but talk to the right people that have maybe come up through through poverty, for instance, I think they can get closer to, to making the right decisions. So those are two significant changes. I think the other thing is that I, I think the Office of the Public Defender is really seen in a positive light more than more often than not. And I think mm-hmm. that, that has to do with having built good community relations. I think it's building within the office things that really benefit everybody. So we have a forensic unit. And they're the people that are in my forensic unit, they're the go-to people. The judges will go to them and and you'll get phone calls saying, hey, can you help this person or can you help that person? And so I think that type of a, a relationship has, has really changed things. Um, you know, the crimes that we're seeing, I, I'm, it's sad to tell you that I am seeing an uptick, obviously, in juvenile crimes. Uh, and that's sad because we had at one point, we had about 10,000 juvenile cases. Uh, we dropped to 2,500. And now wow. I, and now we're, so you see the big difference. Now Part, you're back to what? Um, this year will probably be somewhere in the vicinity of about 3,100 cases, but which doesn't sound like a okay. lot, but it's an, uh, it's an uptick that you don't want to see. The other thing is, is that, you know, I was saddened uh, to, to, to know that we had uh, 132 homicides, uh, more or less, appointed to our office between 2022 and 2023. And I decided to do a demographics and say, hey, you know, l- tell me what's happening. You had 58 of those were a, a, a a black defendant, a black victim. 36 of them were a white defendant, a white victim. And so there's this mis well there's this misperception out there that everything's happening in in just the black neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. That's not true. And so I You mean there's white on white crime? Well, and yeah, yes, and it I does t- happen. And it does. And it was important for me to say to put this in a perspective because I, you know, a lot of when I'm talking to Yvette Lewis, for instance, I mean, you know, I'm so on the NAACP. Yep. You know, I'm I'm on I'm speed dial, and she'll call me and she'll say, 
this is going on, this is going on, and we'll check it out. We'll see, hey, is it really happening? Because she's concerned about the curfew because she's concerned with how it's going to be applied. Is Mm -hmm. it going to be applied really citywide or is it really not going to be applied that way? Should we focus on Ybor City? I would tell you that, you know, we need to focus on on areas that, that have problems, obviously, but, you know, some people will tell you that they can name a couple of bars that are not in Ybor City where there's problems that happen on a regular basis. And so people want to make sure that all of that is being addressed, that it's not just one per- one particular area. So those are the biggest changes I've seen. The other, obviously, would be that we have grown our budget, thank goodness, to $24 million. We did finally get people's attention. And I think that's something that will stay. Have some great, some great public defenders across the, the state that are ready to uh, – to take on even more of this, hey, let's get these budgets more equitable. And so that's really, really good to know. Um, talk a little bit about who you would like to see follow you. Who, who, is, who are you supporting in the, in the race for, uh, to be your replacement? Well, I'm supporting Rocky Brancato, who has been with uh, the office for 20 years. And uh, I obviously have endorsed him and, and will continue to work uh, hard uh, to, to hopefully convince the community that he's the right choice. He's your number two? He is my number two. He, he, that's been now for a couple, of, uh, a couple of years. He was my felony bureau chief for a while. He was a division chief for a while. He came from another uh, office, so we've always had the perspective of that office. Uh, you know, he's to me, he's a, a great number two because obviously if, once I make a decision, he will implement the decisions. Um, and the decisions are not made unilaterally. We talk to everybody. So right now, if we're going to make decisions about how to replace one division chief because somebody has left or has gone up to do major crimes, you know, we sit with the, the remaining division chiefs and say, who would you like to see promoted to this particular position? So we've built good relationships within the office. Uh, decisions are not made just because Julie wants to. Uh, decisions aren't made just because you're, you know, if, if you buy me a cup of coffee, uh, that doesn't mean that you're going to get the, the position. Tenure doesn't necessarily in and of itself give you a position. It's got to be something that we can objectively look at and subjectively look at and say, this is why we're making these decisions. Um, you know, have, uh, I have a, a tremendous number of, of good lawyers that are in the office that are death qualified. And so, you know, one of the things was that, you know, I said to Rocky, you have to be able to do death penalty cases. I said, you just have to. And yeah. so we did. We worked on some death penalty cases together. Uh, one of the things in, we used to have a sex offender division and nobody wanted to go to that division. And I said, everybody that's going to go to major crimes is going to do homicides has to go through that. Rotate through. You have to go yeah. through because you have to be able to do the most difficult of cases. And I think he has proven himself not only in, within the office, but he's proven himself within the outside in the community too. He's out there. He's working hard. He's building relationships, but he's going to have his own vision. And I, I mentioned one of them when I was speaking the other day, and that is is that he sees he sees our juvenile area being run differently than the manner in which I do it. I did it because we started at ten thousand cases. I wanted to get it down. I wanted to make sure that our kids were being well represented. Yeah. And, and I thought it was important to focus good talent in there. We're um, out of time, so let's real quick. That was great that you talked about Rocky. Let's mention he's running against Susie, Lisa McLean, Lisa McLean. And is there uh, anybody else in that no race? No Republicans so far, right? So far, no. All right. Well, Julie, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for all your service to Hillsborough County. Um, uh, thank you, John, for your fine work at the board. Thank you, DJ Spaceship. Um, 
Up next is Alternative Radio, followed by um, It's the Music with um, Harrison Harrison Nash. Nash. Thank you all. WMNF Tampa. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Julie.